You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Anita Kumar, who is the site medical director at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Anita, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Dr. Miller, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, we're going to be talking today about mantle cell lymphoma and the translocation between 11 and 14. What is that for myself and for other listeners? What does that mean in terms of why mantle cell is what it is? This translocation between chromosomes 11 and 14 is critically important for the pathogenesis of mantle cell lymphoma because it juxtaposes the gene CCND1, which leads to the production of the protein cyclin D1, next to the immunoglobulin heavy chain locus, which drives its overexpression. And when we have increased levels of cyclin D1, this impacts the regulation of the cell cycle. And so we know that cyclin D1 is an important regulator of the transition from G1 to S phase in the cell cycle. And we know that this translocation uh, leads toward the transformation of normal B lymphocytes toward malignant B lymphocytes in mantle cell lymphoma. Now, we don't believe that this is the only alteration that's required to give rise to mantle cell lymphoma, but it certainly is a very important step toward the development of lymphoma in the case of mantle cell. Good. Thank you. Let's go back and unpack it a little bit, just because I think it's an interesting topic. Again, two genes which don't belong together are put next to each other, and that leads to the upregulation of cyclin D1. Do I have it right? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And that, in turn, puts more cells into S phase. Yes. That's right. Cyclin D1 basically binds together with CDK4-6, which is an important regulator of this G1 S phase transition. And it leads to the phosphorylation of the retinoblastoma protein, which is normally bound to another protein called E2F. And so when E2F is released, then the G1 to S phase transition occurs. So at the molecular level, cyclin D1 is interfacing with this protein CDK4-6 and then driving cells toward S phase. What does that mean in terms of how mantle cell behaves? How does mantle cell behave compared to other lymphomas? So mantle cell lymphoma is a very unique entity because it is both clinically and biologically heterogeneous. So in many cases, about 85% of the time, mantle cell lymphoma behaves in an aggressive manner, meaning the cells proliferate fairly rapidly, and often patients present with a significant burden of disease and require initiation of therapy. 
However, there are also cases of mantle cell lymphoma that are more indolent. And these cases have much uh, lower proliferation and oftentimes can be associated with a low burden of disease and patients can be asymptomatic at time of presentation and even candidates for observation or a watch and wait strategy. So one of the interesting aspects of mantle cell lymphoma, and we don't understand all of the molecular underpinnings of this, although there has been more work to try to unpack these differences. The interesting aspect is that patients really lie on a wide biologic and clinical spectrum in terms of initial presentation. To say more, if you would, in terms of how would you try to decide when you're meeting a new patient whether this is going to be someone in part of that subgroup where it's more indolent? Sounds like that might be 15%, the patients versus the other 85%. Are there things that you would look for as a clinician and an investigator that would sort of point you in one direction or another? Absolutely. So there are a number of clinical and also biologic markers that we utilize to risk stratify patients and to better understand what their disease behavior may be like or predict their disease behavior and their prognosis. And some of these features actually also help us to better understand what therapies they may be most responsive to. So the first indication is really how a patient initially presents. Do they have symptoms related to their disease? We oftentimes utilize a clinical uh, risk stratification tool called the Mantle Cell International Prognostic Index, or the MIPI, which includes four different features, age, performance status, white blood cell count, and another blood marker lactate dehydrogenase. And this tool is a very powerful tool to understand and predict overall survival with standard therapies that are utilized for mantle cell lymphoma. So a patient who presents to you in older age with a high burden of disease, poor performance status, elevated LDH, this is a patient who tends to need immediate initiation of therapy and lie on a more aggressive end of the mantle cell lymphoma spectrum. In contrast, indolent mantle cell lymphoma has actually now been included in the WHO classification system for lymphoid malignancies in the 2016 iteration. And this clinical subtype is called non-nodal or leukemic indolent mantle cell lymphoma. These patients present similar to patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL, where oftentimes they have evidence of an elevated white blood cell count, evidence of bone marrow involvement uh, with or without splenomegaly. And many times these patients are incidentally found to have an elevated white blood cell count or absolute lymphocyte count, and they are without symptoms at that time. And this subtype of mantle cell lymphoma is one that is increasingly recognized, and patients in this category are excellent candidates for initial observation or expectant monitoring. Which I have to say is itself a fascinating thing because we were essentially taught or were taught that mantle cells an aggressive disease and needs to be treated. And yet this population that's more, is it fair to say more CLL-like or more like an indolent lymphoma? 
Absolutely. Yes. And actually, you know, if you look back in the American Society of Hematology, you know, conferences, in some cases, mantle cell lymphoma is actually included in the indolent B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma category. And I think this speaks to the fact that there are some subtypes of mantle cell lymphoma that really do behave more indolently. And although this subtype, the CLL-like subtype or the non-nodal leukemic subtype of mantle cell lymphoma, is one type of clinical presentation in which patients are oftentimes excellent candidates for initial observation. There are other patients also who are good candidates for observation. These also fit into certain clinical phenotypes, and this has been described by a number of different groups. So you're saying there's other subtypes that are more indolent? So I think there are other clinical presentations of patients with mantle cell lymphoma who are candidates for observation beyond the CLL-like patient. These patients, for example, one category would be a patient who has a low level of involvement of their gastrointestinal tract. Patients with mantle cell lymphoma at time of presentation often have evidence of extranodal involvement. The two most common sites of extranodal involvement are the bone marrow and the gastrointestinal tract. Patients can sometimes be found to have mantle cell lymphoma involving the GI tract during a routine screening colonoscopy. And patients who have microscopic involvement of the gastrointestinal tract with mantle cell lymphoma without evidence of, say, an ulcerating lesion within the GI tract or extensive gastrointestinal tract involvement, but instead, you know, either a normal appearing colon and just on pathology presence of mantle cell lymphoma or a very low level of disease with some nodularity, for example, in absence of a anemia and other symptoms related to mantle cell lymphoma or other sites of disease, these patients are oftentimes great candidates for expectant monitoring. And I have several patients in my practice like this who I've monitored for five plus years who've never had significant progression of their disease. And we're trying to better understand the biologic underpinnings of these patients with indolent mantle cell lymphoma. And one of the important features is the absence of expression of a neuronal transcription factor called SOX11. And in these cases of GI tract only mantle cell lymphoma um, at a microscopic level, interestingly, we've observed that these patients are also SOX11 negative, similar to cases that we see with the CLL-like mantle cell lymphoma. So I want to go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the cyclin D1 and CDK4-6. These two major groups of mantle cell, the more traditional kind that's aggressive, the indolent type. Can you divide them based on that basic biology of this disease? Do they have different levels, different levels of overexpression? So that's a very interesting question. Actually, in both cases, patients have the genetic hallmark of the disease with the translocation between 11 and 14 and expression of cyclin D1. But what distinguishes these patients at a molecular level is the presence versus absence of SOX11, which is this neural transcription factor. And what we see in classic cases of mantle cell lymphoma is that essentially the naive B cell stays in the mantle zone of the lymph node. It does not enter the germinal center. 
it does not undergo immunoglobulin somatic hypermutation, and it leads to the development of the so-called classic mantle cell lymphoma, which is more aggressive in nature. In contrast, patients with this indolent mantle cell lymphoma, the B cells enter the germinal center, they undergo a somatic hypermutation of the immunoglobulin heavy chain, and they lack expression of SOX11. And then this gives rise to this non-nodal leukemic and splenic mantle cell lymphoma. But what we're seeing is that the clinical phenotypes associated with SOX11 mantle cell lymphoma are not always just CLL-like. They can also be presentations like what I described with a small amount of involvement of the gastrointestinal tract at a microscopic level. There's also another subtype of mantle cell lymphoma, which tends to be indolent, which are patients who have low-volume lymphadenopathy. They may have involvement of the bone marrow or the spleen as well, but the overall disease burden is low, and when patients initially present, they do not have symptoms present at the time. They don't have significant cytopenias and, again, are candidates for expectant monitoring. In some of these cases, these patients may have SOX11 expression, but they oftentimes will have a low what we call proliferation index, which is another important biologic marker in mantle cell lymphoma. And again, these patients are also candidates for initial monitoring. Colleagues at New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center, Peter Martin and John Leonard, were the first to describe that a subset of patients, somewhere between 15 and 30 percent of mantle cell lymphoma patients, could be initially expectantly monitored without any evidence of a decrement in overall survival for these patients. This has now been recapitulated by multiple academic groups. At the British Columbia Cancer Center, they published their series. We recently published our series from Memorial Sloan Kettering. And the same themes have emerged, that there are a number of patients who are appropriate candidates. Those who are monitored for the longest period of time tend to fall into this CLL-like subtype. But there are many other patients in whom you can monitor them for a period of time. The median time is about two years. And this allows patients to basically not be exposed to toxicities of therapy. And given the pace of advances within the field of mantle cell lymphoma, waiting for two years before initiation of therapy may lead to significant advances in terms of the field. And so when we speak to our patients, we believe that expectant monitoring is really a powerful initial management strategy in many mantle cell lymphoma patients. So this has been a great review of the indolent type of mantle cell. Let's talk some about the greater majority of patients with mantle cell. Let's say you see a patient, they have B symptoms, they've got adenopathy, they have cytopenias. I mean, this is a sick patient. What's your approach and what would be a very standard approach now to treating patients who need to be treated as first-line therapy? So also a great question and a complicated answer. I think one of the things that I emphasize to my patients when they first come to meet me is that there's not one standard of care for the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. And some of the patients who I see in clinic will have received multiple other opinions at other cancer centers and oftentimes will receive differing opinions about frontline therapy. And I think this reflects the fact that mantle cell lymphoma 
lymphoma is a rare subtype of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Only about 5 to 10% of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas are mantle cell lymphoma. And we don't have a lot of randomized control trials in the field that have compared different treatments to one another. And so we have a number of different phase two experiences that demonstrate excellent treatment options, but sometimes it is challenging to compare things head to head. In general, the standard approach for mantle cell lymphoma over the last 10 or 20 years has been to stratify patients into those who are transplant eligible versus those that are transplant ineligible. So Anita, for the patient you're seeing who's ill with mantle cell, who's part of that larger group of patients, what are some of the approaches and and what do you generally favor for a patient who's fit medically to be treated and yet really needs to be treated all at the same time? So one of the standard paradigms in the initial treatment of mantle cell lymphoma is to stratify patients into those who are younger and eligible for an autologous stem cell transplant versus patients who are older and are not candidates for an upfront autologous stem cell transplant. Some of the best data for patients with aggressive mantle cell lymphoma includes Intensive chemotherapy, oftentimes containing a chemotherapy drug called cytarabine, which is highly active in mantle cell lymphoma. And if patients are chemosensitive to induction chemotherapy containing cytarabine, then patients will receive consolidation with high-dose chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue. There has also been recent data that demonstrates that rituximab maintenance after autologous stem cell transplant is associated with improvements in outcome, including progression-free and overall survival. So one standard treatment approach for a younger, fit patient is cytarabine-containing chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplant, followed by rituximab maintenance that is typically given every two months for a total of three years if it's tolerated. Are there patients you would consider not sending to transplant who have such a good response that you'd monitor them, or in general, are patients going on to transplant? So that's a great question and the study of an active clinical trial that's being performed in the cooperative group across the United States, where if patients achieve a negative PET scan after induction chemotherapy and then have absence of minimal residual disease using a blood test called the adaptive clonoseq platform, if patients are MRD negative and PET negative, then they can participate in a randomized clinical trial to either go on to receive high-dose therapy and autologous stem cell transplant followed by rituximab maintenance or rituximab maintenance alone. So this will be a very exciting study to help define whether if patients have an excellent response to induction chemotherapy, whether or not they would benefit from consolidation with an upfront autologous stem cell transplant. There's also very compelling data that was published recently that showed that patients who harbor a P53 mutation, which has been shown to be of significant prognostic relevance in mantle cell lymphoma, that these patients did not benefit from an upfront autologous stem cell transplant. This group of patients tends to be more chemorefractory. So this is another group of patients who now we are beginning to exclude from the standard intensive chemotherapy followed by transplant approach. 
unfortunately, this group of patients who get standard therapy, let's say with cytarabine, and either don't get a complete response or who relapse, what are some of the clinical trials you're excited about? So there have been a number of new therapies that have become FDA-approved for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Many of these therapies are biologically targeted therapies. So for example, targeting Bruton's tyrosine kinase, which is within the B-cell receptor pathway, or BTK, is a very effective treatment strategy for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. The use of the immune modulatory agent lenalidomide is also an effective treatment strategy. The use of BCL2 inhibition with a drug called venetoclax has also shown very promising efficacy for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. One approach, of course, that has been used historically is to use chemotherapy that patients were not previously exposed to in their first line. But now we're seeing that these biologically targeted therapies are actually potentially more efficacious and associated with a more favorable side effect profile. And so increasingly, this is what we are using in the second line or relapsed refractory setting. At this time, for any patient with relapsed refractory disease, enrollment in a clinical trial is an excellent option because there are a number of new biologically targeted combinations that are being explored. So BTK inhibition combined with other drugs like CDK4-6 inhibitors or BCL2 inhibitors to try to further augment the depth and durability of response. So, by the way, it's interesting because in CLL, some of these same double and triple uh, biologic therapies are being tested. Is there an overlap with what's being done in mantle cell as well? Absolutely. There's actually remarkable biologic similarity to CLL and mantle cell lymphoma. So many of the most active drugs in CLL are also active in mantle cell lymphoma. And certainly the emerging story in mantle cell lymphoma regarding poor response to standard chemotherapy in patients with P53 alteration is also similar to the CLL experience where in that high-risk biologic subset, patients benefit from the use of biologically targeted agents. I want to switch briefly to CAR-T because obviously that's being talked about in a lot of liquid tumors and blood disorders. What's being done with CAR-T for patients with mantle cell? So CAR-T therapies are, of course, very exciting and have been explored extensively in other subsets of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The data has not yet been published or presented for CAR-T cell therapy in mantle cell lymphoma, and we look forward to hearing the results of a study called the ZUMA-2 study, which uses one of the CAR-T cell products and specifically in a cohort of mantle cell lymphoma patients, and we expect to hear that data at the upcoming American Society of Hematology conference in December of 2019. So I think there's more to come, but certainly some of the early data that's been presented on CAR T-cell in mantle cell lymphoma shows great promise, and anecdotally, many of us have been including mantle cell lymphoma patients in CAR T-cell clinical trials and have seen some very exciting responses, even among our highest risk patients. I want to shift gears a little bit. Anita, for the patient who's newly diagnosed and about to enter treatment or really just entered treatment for mantle cell lymphoma, what are some of the side effects of 
treatment that they may expect, let's say with standard chemotherapy, or for that matter, let's say with some of the biologic therapies. But even more so, what I have found as a clinician, sometimes patients don't share their side effects because they're worried that their clinician is going to get worried. What's some of your experience as a clinician working with these patients, what they do experience, and then what they do or don't communicate with you? I think that the partnership between the physician and the patient is extremely important, really in any disease, but particularly in the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma, because there has really been a great number of advances in terms of uh, treatment options for mantle cell lymphoma and not one clear standard of care. So really actively engaging a patient and having that open dialogue about how they are experiencing their treatment is really critical to being able to develop an individualized treatment plan for each patient depending on what their life context is, what their needs and goals are in terms of their treatment plan. Mantle cell lymphoma, unfortunately, is not a curable disease, and so we really think about this as a chronic disease management over time. And so uh, there are some patients who, for example, may be eligible for an upfront transplant, say, for example, somebody in their late 60s who's technically fit enough, but may say to me, you know what, I would rather get chemotherapy that will allow me to continue to work through my treatment that has fewer side effects, where I won't lose my hair, where I can continue to do all the things that I want to do to be involved in my grandchildren's lives, their important events, etc. And we have an open discussion and we say that, you know, these treatments have not been compared head to head, but for example, bendamustine and rituximab, which is a very effective chemo immunotherapy strategy in the front line, is very well tolerated with a much more favorable side effect profile. And perhaps that would be a better treatment choice for a given patient versus intensive induction and an upfront autologous stem cell transplant that typically requires a prolonged hospitalization and things like that. In terms of communicating side effects, I think that is really critically important during the treatment process. And we really try to work together with all of our team members to engage a patient and to have them feel comfortable sharing with us what their experience is on treatment. I think this is also really important in the relapsed refractory setting because, for example, some of the biologically targeted therapies have known side effects that can be really managed well with a supportive medications or with lowering the dose of the medication. And what we know about, for example, ibrutinib is that it's still very highly active, even at lower dose levels. And so oftentimes we can modify the dose of the therapy and maintain efficacy, but really improve a patient's quality of life by doing so. There are also second generation brutin's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, for example, like acalabrutinib and others that have different side effect profiles. And so oftentimes by really understanding what the patient's experience is, we can get them on the drug that works best for them and is also tolerated best. Let me ask you just a final question. Are, are there any resources that you think are particularly helpful either to physicians, nurses, patients for that matter? Absolutely. So the Leukemia Lymphoma Society really provides a number of excellent resources for patients and families. One that I think is particularly helpful is the Clinical Trial Support Center, which is a group of highly skilled nurses 
who will talk to patients um, and families one-on-one and help to educate patients about available clinical trial options and help them navigate really uh, how to be connected with a clinical trial that may be best suited for that particular patient given where they live and other features of their disease process. One thing I have found is that clinical trials are really of critical importance for patients with mantle cell lymphoma given really the rapid development of novel therapies within the field. And there are so many different clinical trial options available that having this type of support that the LLS provides can really be instrumental in making the process a little bit less overwhelming and personalized so that patients and families can find the right clinical trial for them. Excellent. All right. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I want to thank Dr. Anita Kumar, who's been with us today. Anita, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. For additional resources, including publications on mantle cell lymphoma, be sure to check out our website, www.lls.org. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about blood diseases, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.